0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church, with readers now in 193 countries. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Letting Go of Your Story, Learning from Troutal Yunga, for Sunday, February 19th, 2006. As a little Austrian girl, Traddle Jungen always wanted to be a ballerina, but a cruel twist of fate ruined her dreams forever. When she learned about a job vacancy in the German Chancellery during World War II, she entered a typing competition, and to her shock was chosen, quote, by co- complete coincidence and chance, end quote, as Adolf Hitler's personal secretary. As she recalled later, I was 22 and I didn't know anything about politics. It didn't interest me. From December 1942 until April 30, 1945, when she heard the shots of Hitler's suicide in his Berlin bunker, Junga conversed every day with one of the worst psychopaths in human history. Later Junga was racked by guilt for her complicity in the Nazi atrocities. And she even admitted, quote, "...liking the greatest criminal ever to have lived. I admit I was fascinated by Adolf Hitler. He was a pleasant boss and a fatherly friend. I deliberately ignored all the warning voices inside me and enjoyed the time by his side almost until the bitter end. It wasn't what he said, but the way he said things and how he did things." Just before she died at the age of 81, Jung emerged from the safety of her silence and struggled to make peace with her past. She published her memoirs with the title Until the Final Hour, 2002, and gave ten hours of interviews for the documentary film about her life called "Blind Spot." In her cameo appearance in the film Downfall from the year 2004, about the final days in Hitler's Berlin bunker, she lamented, I never thought that fate would take me somewhere I'd never really wanted to be. The tragedy of Junge was not her association with Adolf Hitler. How many naive, patriotic, and idealistic 22-year-old kids could have resisted that job offer? Rather, her tragedy was that for fifty-seven years, she remained trapped by her past, full of self-recrimination and unable to forgive herself. Obsessed by her past, she effectively foreclosed her present and her future. Beyond forgiving herself, we can only imagine her struggle to sense any forgiveness from God, from her fellow citizens or from the families of six million Jews who were slaughtered in the Holocaust. In the scriptures from Isaiah for this week, God invites us to do what Trattleyunga could not do. He encourages us to forget the past and to move beyond painful memories that chain us to regrets, sins, failures, foolish choices, Betrayals, resentments, disappointments, unsought tragedy, missed opportunities, and roads not taken. From Isaiah 43, verses 18 to 25, we read, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert, in streams in the wasteland. The past that darkened Israel's present included defeat, devastation, and exile at the hands of Assyria in 722 B.C. and then by Babylon in 586 B.C. Each one of us today has a past history that shapes our present life for good and ill. Parsing your past is essential for healing in the present and hope for the future. Forgetting your past does not mean ignoring it, denying it, sanitizing it, rationalizing or repressing it. In this sense, remembering is necessary, good, and healthy. With all the brutal realism genuine candor, and ruthless honesty that we can muster. We name our past for what it is. We claim it as our own and we believe that God will redeem and use it for our good. We also embrace our past with empathy and tenderness for the human condition. Our goal is not shame, blame, fear, exposure, or sadness. But instead, liberation from obsessing about the past in ways that paralyze our present and obscure God's future for us. The psalm for this week provides an interesting case study. As I read David in Psalm 41, his prayer zigzags in a schizophrenic manner. He begins with an admirable confession. O Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. But then he boasts about his integrity, and he equates his fortunate circumstances with divine endorsement. He savors dredging up past slights, slanders, and betrayals by both friends and enemies. In his self-righteousness, David remembers his past as an opportunity for revenge rather than for reconciliation. Raise me up, he says, that I may repay them. Perhaps David wrote this psalm before he slept with Bathsheba and murdered her husband, Uriah. He sounds incapable of forgiving or forgetting. Wallowing in your past to right every wrong or to settle every score is as bad as pretending that your past never existed in the first place. If we have remembered rightly and repented accordingly, the gospel invites us to forget the past. Let us draw near eagerly to Christ, advised St. Macarius of Egypt in the 5th century, and let us not despair of our salvation, for it is a trick of the devil to lead us to despair by reminding us of our past sins. As if to show us the way, in the text from Isaiah, God himself says that he has forgotten Israel's past transgressions, and that he will remember your sins no more. If God can forget, then so can we. When the Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy, he was an old man perhaps near death. But even in his later years, he remembered his past to Timothy with remarkable candor. In 1 Timothy 1, 13, we read, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, the worst of sinners. In Luke's telling in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Paul participated in the stoning of Stephen. But having acknowledged his past, Paul put it behind him and lived in the present with an eye towards God's future. In Philippians 3:13 and 14 we read, One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. In a poignant coincidence, Trottle-Junge died of cancer the evening that the film Blind Spot premiered at the 2002 Berlin Film Festival. Although she took early retirement due to severe depression, I like to believe that she made peace with her tortured past. Othmar Schmidterer, the producer of Blind Spot, was among the last people ever to speak with her. He quoted Junga as saying, quote, "Now that I let go of my story, I can let go of my life." End quote. So too, does God invite you and me to let go of our story, to embrace and then move beyond our past in confident expectation of His gracious future. For further reflection, here are four ideas. First, watch the wonderful film Blind Spot about the life of Troutel with family or friends. Second, how do you engage and understand your past? Third, identify both healthy and unhealthy ways that we both remember and forget are past. And for consideration, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 1 verses 1 to 12 for this week, friends brought a paralytic to Jesus for healing. He offered forgiveness, and only later did he heal the paralytic. This week for my book review, I review The Conferences by John Cassian, translated and annotated by Boniface Ramsey, New York, The Newman Press, 1997, 886 pages. Like many early Christian writers, the life of John Cassian, who lived from 360 to 435, remains shrouded in the mists of forgotten history. He was probably born in present-day Romania. When he was about 20, he traveled with his friend Germanus to Bethlehem, where he joined a monastery. From Bethlehem, Cassian and Germanus made at least two extended visits to the famous monastics down in Egypt, and by some estimates spent 10 years there. From there, they moved on to Constantinople where the bishop John Chrysostom ordained Cassian to the diaconate sometime around the year 400, at which time he traveled to Rome to courier some letters. In Rome, Cassian was ordained a priest by Pope Innocent I. He later settled in Marseille, where he founded two monasteries and wrote three books. His conferences, the book under review this week, along with its much shorter companion volume entitled The Institutes, chronicle the riches of early Egyptian monasticism based upon his considerable personal experience and acquaintances. And in so doing, Cassian is credited with transplanting that monastic influence to the West. These desert monks are so far removed from our own time, place, and Christian experience That we might well ask why one would read them today other than from a sense of historical curiosity. I suggest two reasons, one from scripture and the other from experience. In reading Cassian's first-hand accounts of early desert monasticism, one is humbled by the zeal of their renunciation as they explored what the hard sayings of Jesus might mean. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me Luke nine twenty three. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple Luke fourteen twenty six. If you want to be perfect, Go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Matthew 19, verse 21. Nor was this a mere theoretical inquiry, for the monks prized practical experience and certainly spiritual experimentation above all things. Cassian's conferences report their conclusions. The monks would never suggest that a life of solitude in the desert was for everyone, and in fact they affirm that each person is fit for a certain orientation in life due to many factors, some of which are beyond their control, and the chief of which is God's call upon your own life. All Christians, then, must discover a way to live these words of Jesus, even if you don't flee to the Egyptian desert. Practically speaking, I have never read any Christian literature that explained myself to myself as well as these monastics. Just what did they find when they fled to the lonely interior of the Egyptian desert? They experienced a raging battle in the geography of the heart, what John Krasovkas calls a spirituality of imperfection that might be thought of as a sustained effort to discover what Paul meant in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 25. Germanus, Cassian's friend, asks his elder, Why is it then that superfluous thoughts insinuate themselves into us so subtly and hiddenly when we do not even want them, and indeed do not even know of them, that it is very difficult not only to cast them out, but even to understand them and to catch hold of them. And that's only the beginning of the battle for the wholeness of heart that we read in these monastics. When you read through these pages, you discover a remarkable candor, as Cassian puts it, without any obfuscating embarrassment, and that does not in the least despise anyone in a belittling fashion for failure and frailty. Here is a quick list of only a few of the maladies that I underlined in John Cassian's conferences. Sleeplessness, vile dreams, impulsive urges, seething emotions, foolish fantasies, pious pretense that masks as virtue, clerical ambition and the desire to dominate other people, pernicious despair, confusion wild mood swings, flattery, and lust. The list is almost endless, and these are only the symptoms of ill health that we know. Listen to Cassian. There are many things that lie hidden in my conscience, which are known and manifest to God, even though they may be unknown and obscure to me. Paradox and humor are never far away. Why, Cassian wonders, would a monk renounce great wealth only to exhibit intense possessiveness or irascibility over a penknife, a needle, or a pen? Or consider his description of a monastic church service that includes, quote, coughing or clearing our throat, or laughing or yawning or falling asleep, end quote. These desert ascetics were brutally realistic about our human condition, and unfailingly tender because of it. Nor were they hopeless, but confident that we can make progress through vigilance and trust in God's grace, even though, paradoxically, the more you mature, the wiser you become regarding your own many failures. We are, after all, only human beings. We read in Hebrews 11, 37-38, of early Christians who, quote, "...went about in sheepskin and in goatskin, in distress, afflicted, needy, the world unworthy of them, wandering in deserts, in mountains and caves and caverns of the earth." End quote. I myself am not called to be a monk, but I am called to wrestle with the flighty wandering of the human mind, as Cassian puts it, in order to experience purity of heart by following what he calls the proven compass of love. Thank God for these heroes of the faith and for John Cassian's labor of love in recording their blessed memory and example. This is a long book at nearly 900 pages, but I was somehow sad when I came to its end, as if I had left behind trusted, tender, and very wise guides. John Cassian, The Conferences For film this week, I reviewed the film Broken Flowers from the year 2005, starring Bill Murray. Does Don Johnston really have a 19-year-old son from his philandering past, or even does it matter? An anonymous letter he received insists that he does, and that his enterprising son is on a journey to find his father. But Don is not so sure, perhaps it's a hoax. His next-door neighbor, Winston, a wannabe detective writer, cannot resist the intrigue so he sends Don packing to visit four girlfriends from his past, all the while looking for important clues to discover just who sent that letter and bore his son. We know that Don will visit four former lovers and that they will now live in extraordinarily different settings. It sure is crazy how people change, exclaims the husband of a former lover. Laura that is, Sharon Stone is a closet organizer. Dora, played by Frances Conroy, was a former hippie who lives in a wealthy but sterile suburb and sells what she calls, quote, high quality prefab homes, end quote. Carmen, played by Jessica Lang, is a former lawyer turned pet communicator. And Penny, starring Tilda Swan, lives in rural isolation among angry greaseball bikers. Don's neighbor Winston identified a fifth candidate who died, so Don even visits her grave. But this simple road trip develops more subtleties than we might imagine. The journey transforms Don. At first he professed wholesale disinterest. Then he agreed to go... He eventually becomes interested in these former lovers and how their lives had intersected, and by the end of the film, he himself is haunted with finding his son. Also, violent dreams about any number of other women agitate him with unpleasant memories. A second letter from his most recent former girlfriend, Sherry, on similar stationery bookends the film. Up to the last of the film, you do not know if Don succeeds in his quest, and neither does he. Then you realize that this movie is not about Don's girlfriends or his phantom son, but about himself an aging Don Juan who made money, quote unquote, in computers, but who awakens to move beyond his laconic couch potato existence. He's not trying to find former lovers or even his son, he's trying to find himself. Broken Flowers from the year 2005 starring Bill Murray. And finally for poetry this week I have an untitled poem by John Betjeman who lived from 1906 to 1984. It's very short at four lines but I hope you'll enjoy it and find it as powerful as I did. And is it true? And is it true, this most tremendous tale of all, that God was man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine? John Betjeman. Thank you for joining JourneyWithJesus.net for Sunday, February 19th, 2006. And please join us every Monday for a new essay based upon the biblical lectionary, a book review, a film review, and a poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.